After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. everyone, it's Raghu Marcus and Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network, and I'm with Pico Iyer, and Pico, welcome. Thank you, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I am absolutely sure many of you in our audience know who Pico is. He has written uh, a host of really great books, and um, I... You, know, you can hear people, hosts, say this uh, podcast all the time. They have somebody, a writer on and say, you, he's he's like my favorite writer and all, you know, and it's all BS and everything, but, you know, hype. But this is no hype, folks. Okay, I've been reading Pico for a long time and uh, just through fortuitous circumstances, we were, we were brought together in a moment and Pico, I'm really happy that you're here. We have so many. I, I mean, I feel like I know you, of course, when you, because you're. And Pico writes uh, um, some of his books are around travel, and I wouldn't call you a travel writer by any stretch, but you certainly uh, bring a zest and a soul into uh, the places that you visit and describe. Uh, there's one, by the way, the, the book on Cuba. I was going to Cuba at the same time. I, I read that book on the plane to Cuba. I think so. Uh, so anyway, just love, 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 love uh, what you do. And Pico also for everybody has been uh, has worked with and 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 spent a lot of time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and uh, also spends a considerable amount of time in Japan. And uh, before I run a whole bio th- uh, by you, <laughs> I'd rather you just say. Because yeah, what I do with people, uh, as everyone who listens to Mind Rolling knows, I really ask them, what is it when you were a young, you know, a young guy, I mean, teenager, that, uh, that really were some of the transformative events or moments uh, that made you realize there was a path to freedom? Should we call it that? We can call it all sorts of different things. Or just beco- being able to become happy and, or be able to... Uh, knowingly like in my case and many people's case from the late 60s we we experimented with psychedelics so we knew that there was uh, another uh, level of reality or a reality that was more informed shall we say so what were your uh what were the things that triggered you well i think i had one blessing which is uh, to grow up in england to parents from india and both my parents were philosophers and really uh, students of all the world's religions. So even as a little boy, 
at the age of three, when I'd go into the living room, there would be Tibetan monks seated mm. and us. Um, my father, when I was three years old, went to India to meet the Dalai Lama the year that the Dalai Lama came into exile. Uh, and meanwhile, I was going through this uh, classical Anglican tradition, and my parents moved to California in the thick of the 1960s, just the world you were describing. Mm. And so I was, I grew up commuting back and forth between the summer of love, California in the 60s, and a 15th century English boarding school, <laughs> which in retrospect told me that neither of them perhaps was in possession of the whole truth but that each could complement the other and point to something beyond them. So in California, I was hearing a lot about Hinduism, which is my parents' religion, and Buddhism. In England, I was hearing about Anglicanism. And I think really what blew me apart was um, actually in my mid-20s, the first time I went to Tibet. Mm. And because my parents were philosophers and uh, so steeped in all the religions of the world, as a young man, I was very keen to be a skeptic. So anything I'd heard about Tibet, I was eager to disregard. But I arrived in Lhasa in 1985. I started walking around the Patala Palace, and I literally felt as if I was on the rooftop of my being, not just the rooftop of, on, of the world, but some state of consciousness that was different from anything I'd experienced. Mm. And that was as familiar to me as my own breathing and my own skin, but hadn't been visited in this particular lifetime. And... Even as a young guy, I was um, skeptical of how cliched it sounds, you know, going to Tibet and suddenly being catapulted into a different sense of reality. But there was no arguing with um, the sensation. I was only there for four days. I deliberately spent only four days there because I knew that it had planted the seeds that would flower over a lifetime. Um, mm. I'd already met His Holiness um, when I was a teenager. My father took me up to Dharamsala, and so I'd had the blessing of being in his room and, and seeing his attentive presence and then meeting him when he started coming to th this country in the late 70s and early 80s. But I think there's some quality about Tibet, though I've spent a lot of time at other high-altitude places that uh, pierces you. Mm. Wow, yeah, so I've heard from many people. Who I have not gone. I've spent a lot of time in India, but I have not gone there. Wow. Um, so... Then your 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 life took on uh, a current of wandering in a, in a way, travel and so on. Tell tell us about how you started uh, moving from one continent to another. <laughs> well, as you can tell, I was I was wandering from the time I was a little boy. I mean, from the time I was born, I had an Indian face and an Indian name in an England where, in those days, there was nobody else from India. And then when I was seven, my parents moved to California. So suddenly I was a little kid with an Indian face and an English accent in Santa Barbara, which didn't know much about India or England at, at that time. And so I suppose I felt that my home was in the conspiracy between places and in the passageways mm -hmm. between fixities. And that in some ways I was as much at home in the plane between California and England as in either of those places. And so that was obviously a good launching pad. And I think... As a little boy, I didn't. I always thought this is a really unusual and fortunate position to feel that I have pieces of myself in many physical places, but I'm not beholden to any one of them. And I never could have guessed then that 
40 years on, it would be almost the norm that if you're in Los Angeles or Toronto or London today, most people are in the same state as me. Their parents from one place, their partners from another, they feel an affinity with a third and they're based in a fourth and maybe have many more. So in some ways, the notion of a physical home was exploded for me very early. And then my actual home in California burnt to the ground. Uh, and I lost everything I owned um, in my early 30s. And to me, that was really a way of reminding me that the only home that I, I, I could turn to was within, was mm. portable, and was whatever the values and passions and friendships that I always carried with me. Mm. So in some ways, it was really a liberation from even thinking about any physical place as a home or any physical places abroad. And I suppose that's how I began wandering. I was lucky enough to travel a lot in my teens. Uh, and I realized... I felt I could be a deeper and more open self on the road than I could ever be at home because when I'm at home, I'm stuck in my own image of myself, my own stories and my own habits. Uh, and as soon as I'm walking down the street in Burma or Haiti and a stranger comes up to me with a hand extended, he doesn't know who I am, which college I went to, what's on my business card. I don't know that about him. The only thing he's asking is, are you kind? Can I trust you? Mm. Who are you beneath all the surface definitions? And I love, I suppose, from an early age, the way that travel liberates you from kind of ephemera and takes you to very fundamental questions, not least about who you really are. Um, so I, I, I traveled for quite a long time. And when I was in my 20s, I had quite a nice job in midtown Manhattan. And I left that um, to go and live in a monastery in Kyoto for a year. Because I thought whatever I'd learned in Midtown Manhattan would be rounded out by what I could learn in, in Kyoto. And although my stay in the monastery didn't last a long time, I'm, I'm still more or less living in Kyoto uh, 30 years on. So I think I was responding to that kind of intuition all of us feel, which is there's another home, there's a deeper reality, there's a world in which I can let go of all the simple ways in which I mm. tell the world who I am. Yeah, beautiful. And I would say, just add to that, when you talk about going to a place where you, you don't know anybody and you're just meeting somebody, they have not, they don't know anything of your story, but except, is this a kind human being? Is this an open human being? And, and there's two places where I learned that more than any other places in the world. Uh, and you've been to far, far more countries than I. But uh, one was India uh, and the other was Cuba. In my experience, and I've gone through Europe and all of that, I've been in Africa, uh, but yeah, that yeah. that was so ever-present. And it was more, in India, you, you go by somebody uh, in the in the hills where I spent a lot of time in the Kamoan, in the foothills of the Himalayas, uh, and they would say, Radhe, no, they would say Sitaram. In Brindavan, where Krishna is, is king, they would say Radhe Sham. And that was your first greeting, the name of God. Okay, mm -hmm. let's start at the top, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and go from there. And in Cuba, although there wasn't that, uh, their smile acted in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. those, mm -hmm. those people, it's just amazing. And, and it's interesting, both, I mean, Cuba often, Havana used to remind me of Mumbai a lot with mm -hmm. the sea-worn buildings and, and that mixture that they both have of dilapidation and real spirit and energy because the conditions in both those countries are oblique and oppressed often, but 
the main impression you get is of energy, optimism, and vitality. Mm. And you feel there's no suppressing. I mean, India, I often tell my friends, is the opposite of a despairing country. That's when you're walking down the street in India, the conditions are often frightful, but the feeling is never pessimistic. And so, so indeed with, um, yeah, I can see exactly why they would both speak to the same part of you. And I think for me, the beauty of being in India is almost instantly, you know, you're in the hands of the gods or the yeah, faith. Yeah. There's no way you can control even the next minute yeah, yeah, um, how you're going to walk down a single block. Yeah. You have to surrender. And more than anywhere else, it shakes you out of all your defenses. Yeah. And it's a kind of shock therapy in some ways yeah. that you're very much confronted with who you are when your defenses fly away. For for that very reason, I, I retreat in India. I, every year I do a retreat, and it is in India. Part, uh, that's the foremost reason I do it. And secondarily, of course, uh, it's my whole association and family that I have over there at this point. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, uh, believe it or not, the first book I read of yours, not believe it or not, I don't know why I said that, The Lady and the Monk. Four Seasons in Kyoto. And I was attracted by, I don't think I knew of you then, uh, I was attracted by, uh, well, I was attracted by the kind of mystery that it gets evoked by the lady and the monk. A little bit of a, and, and of course I did a lot of projection of my own <laughs> on that. <laughs> and... Um, and and the other th thing is, um, I've always loved uh, Japan, although I've never really been there. Uh, spent more than a day or two, something. Uh, and I, uh, especially the spaciousness of Zen, and this and the the design and the architecture uh, in Kyoto and all of that. That of course I've seen a lot of. Uh, so it attracted me to the book. And um, can, I, can I just read, uh, there's a little passage in this thing that really struck me back then. Um, As more and more experiences began to crowd in on me in Kyoto, and my once empty room began to fill up with more and more presences, not presence, presences, I was finding it harder and harder to keep clear I had ended up, so it seemed, in a whirlpool of paradoxes, such as the one about what a sadist should do to a masochist. <laughs> what does a would-be solitary do in the company of other solitaries? That's a real coin. The very people, in other words, whose company he most enjoys. How does a Thorovian respond to a society of anti-social Thorovians? It's not keeping oneself open, just a way of dodging all commitments. Okay, you got to go on around. Uh, talk about that passage, Pico. Well, you've cut right to the core. And actually what you were saying a minute ago about how you love Japan without having spent time there is exactly what took me over there. Mm. The aesthetic, essentially, which is for you and for me and for so many people so caught up with the raked garden, the black robes, the uh, austerity and clarity of the Zen aesthetic. And then as soon as I left my office in Midtown Manhattan and arrived in a backstreet temple in Kyoto, 
I thought, well, what am I really after? Is it the aesthetics or is it actually this very rigorous spiritual practice that the aesthetics are, are just a vehicle for? Am I just talk about projection? Am I just in thrall to a romance or a projection? Mm. Or is there a reality here that I want to find? So I certainly, I wrote that book when I was just out of my 20s. And I certainly didn't have a clue then. But 30 years on, of course, it's taught me all the lessons I um, I never expected to learn. I mean, that the premise of that book, as you know, is that I went to spend a week in, I went to spend a year in a monastery. And my third week there, I met a woman. And my year in a monastery turned out to be a story of my getting close to that woman and that woman getting closer to taking off and claiming a new destiny. Mm. But I, I married that woman. We're still together near Kyoto 30 years on. Mm. And actually, at this point, I do feel I'm in a monastery. There. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there, but we're a shared monastery with my wife. But um, because I think one of the things that really drew me to Japan, though I didn't understand or articulate it then, was a kind of emotional clarity and and economy, um, and I thought I was bewitched by just the beauty of the the forms there. But now I see what Japan really has to offer is kindness, selflessness, and a deep rooted sense of impermanence and everything that that brings. And although most of my neighbours in Japan would know less about the sutras than people in California. I feel that um, Buddhism animates their every breath very much. Uh, and so to be in a place where everybody is thinking about others before themselves, uh, where they're learning to make themselves invisible, and where um, really uh, there's a sense of a much larger self. Every time the Dalai Lama comes to Japan, he always talks about the big we, as he sees it, the whole of humanity. There's no I or you. It's all And all of us together. And I think Japan is the rare culture that actually... Um, lives a big we. So, um, you know, I, when we, you were talking before about India, I was thinking that part of the beauty of travel is that it renders one so vulnerable. Um, I'm fortified by the things I think I know and the things I believe I can do as I sit here in Canada. On the streets of India, I'm just another helpless pawn. And, um, and travel does that wherever you are, even in a place as un-Indian as Japan, where everything is so well organized and, and so um, spotless. And so um, it, I suppose I went to Japan to have my plans upended and my romances uh, overthrown. And finally, the hard way and the long way to come to a clearer sense of what the reality is there. Mm. It's a very moving place. And because, yeah, and Japan is so shy that I think Kindness is not the first thing people associate with Japan until they go there. And then they're very humbled at how people who in most cases don't speak English will go six hours out of their way to make sure that you are taken back to the place you need to get to. Yeah. Oh. And so later in, in this book, um, you said something, you wrote something else that I, that touched me. Uh, it's actually part of a few pages that I just were was quite moved back by back then by. So when I read in Basho, my solitude shall be my company and my poverty my wealth. I felt I was reading again the anarchist of Walden, pursuing his nonviolent revolution of words, remaking the world by reversing its meanings, and when I read in Dogen. Quote unquote, why leave behind the seat that exists in your own house 
and go aimlessly off to the dusty reaches reaches of other lands. I could almost uh, hear his neighbor in New England declaring, it is not worth the while to go round the world to count the cats in Zanzibar, Thoreau. And when I read Kamo no Chome's account of my hut, singing the praises of a simple life of solitude, I found Thoreau again in the recluse's famous claim that none can know the pleasures of loneliness who has not tasted them himself. And uh, to me, that is uh, the, the one of the biggest fear, maybe after right after death, f- fear of dying, is fear of alone. And I think it's a very, uh, that, that's what this really took me, this pa- passage. Uh, I think it's a very um, significant subject for us to, to, uh, to deal with and to share with. In fact, you know, we do these retreats with, with Ram Dass in Maui and, and other uh, of our Buddhist friends. Uh, and uh, it just occurs to me that th- this is probably, it just this, this sentiment is probably super important for people to cultivate, no? Well, it's interesting that, I mean, you, like a homing pigeon, found th- that sentence amidst so many others, because clearly it, um, the whole of it speaks, speaks to you. But when I was listening to you read it, it really reminded me that Japan is the cathedral of the inner life. And that's why of all the countries in the world, I chose to go to Japan after New York City, which is so much the kind of epicenter of the external world, the world of breaking news and events and diversions and distraction. And I think Japan is the spiritual home of the empty room, whether aesthetically or emotionally. When I went to Japan, what I imagined was a place It's a training in attention, which is therefore a training in intimacy, therefore a training in kindness, but where all the clutter of the world would be taken away and you'd just be there um, having to confront yourself and, and as you say, death and terror, and in my case, love and commitment, which were equally terrifying. Um, (laughs) And there's, there's no hiding. So I suppose, although I didn't last long in the monastery, I thought that Japan more than anywhere was the place, especially for me, because I don't speak much Japanese, where I'd have to um, address these things that were hardest for me. Um, And uh, so to this day, I mean, my wife and I share a two-room rented apartment. It's $700 a month. Uh, No car, no bicycle, no TV, I can understand. Barely any internet, which is why it was such a feat for me even to manage to Skype call with you. Um, I've never used a cell phone in my life. And I think Japan was telling me that the universe within is ultimately going to sustain you much more than um, all the excitements of the the world. Mm. So when you talk about loneliness, I mean, I'm a funny person to talk about that because um, I grew up as an only child. And as you could tell, I grew up actually 6,000 miles away from my parents or um, the nearest relatives. So for me, the challenge has been um, the opposite of most people's challenge. Uh, loneliness is my home. I'm scared of being in company. Uh, <laughs> and that's what's very difficult for me. Um, and that was one of the challenges in Japan. I went there to be alone, and I realized it'd be an ideal place to be alone. And then suddenly I, I'm in love with this woman who had two kids already. Um, what do I do with that? And how ready am I to forsake my precious and beloved loneliness for actually a much more substantial commitment? So I'm sort of going in the opposite direction from most people. As you say, many people are afraid of being alone. I'm too in love with being alone. <laughs> and 
actually yanked me out of that aloneness. Oh. You know, I, when I was in uh, in the 25th floor office on um, 6th Avenue and 50th Street across from Radio City Music Hall in New York, and I imagined Japan, I just saw myself, you know, sitting on a wooden platform in an ancient temple, looking out at the moon, meditating. Uh, but actually, I'm too too given to sitting on a platform by myself meditating. And I think the koan I had to face was being in a domestic relationship, supporting <laughs> two kids and getting those pretty ideas out of my head. Huh. Um, so. Yeah, really. So, and... so I'm, I suppose I'm lucky in that I've never been afraid of being alone. And probably being a writer and a traveler is my way of staking out quite a lot of time mm. to learn. And we, we do have to just, uh, in terms of nomenclature, aloneness is one thing. Loneliness, of course, suggests something missing. Uh, so I like uh, al aloneness is, is yeah. good. Um, we, so an integral part of your life, as far as I have read, uh, and uh, I may be wrong, but I'm assuming... His Holiness the Dalai Lama has certainly mm -hmm. been an integral part of your life. Can you talk about your first meetings with him and, and your current uh, relationship? Yes. So as I mentioned, my father first took me in 1974 when I was 17 on the long winding road up into the foothills of the Himalayas to visit His Holiness in um, Dharamsala. Of course, as a 17-year-old, I couldn't follow a lot of what he was saying to my father, a fellow professional philosopher, but some small door in my head was open just to see this man of instantaneous kindness and presence, mm -hmm. reaching out to a 17-year-old and previously to a three-year-old. Uh, he, he sent me a photograph. When my father met him in 1960, he told his holiness, oh, I've got a little three-year-old boy back in Oxford, England, who took a great interest in every evening listening to the story of your flight out of Tibet to safety. And um, his holiness sent a picture of himself, aged four, already on the lion throne in Lhasa, to me, aged three. And I had it on my desk. And whenever I was feeling a little sorry for myself as a little boy, you know, six-year-old boy being bullied at school or whatever, I only had to see this picture of a four-year-old boy already in charge of 14 million Tibetan Buddhists. I couldn't feel sorry for myself yeah. any longer. Uh, and that photo remained on my desk for um, 20, more than 30 years, actually. It followed me to California. I had it on my desk there. And then our house burnt down. And, of course, the photo was burnt down, too. And in some ways, that was the ultimate Buddhist teaching, which is don't hold to physical things. You can't hold to a photograph. But if the values that the photo is speaking for are inside you, then no forest fire can really eliminate those. So having met him at 17, when he first came to this country in 79, uh, I went to hear him and he started coming to New York in the early 80s uh, at a time when almost nobody I knew had even heard of the Dalai Lama. They didn't even know if it was like the abominable snowman or the Yeti, or they didn't know if it was a living being or just some legendary tradition. So when he would come to New York City, he would hold a press conference, and usually it'd be just four Tibetans and me. So it was a good time to get to know him because the rest of the world wasn't clamoring to be his friend. But really, um, I would say the heart of my time with the Dalai Lama has come the last 12 years. Um, for nine straight Novembers, I've traveled across Japan with him. And my wife and I are part of his little entourage, just with his translators and bodyguards and monastic attendants and we're next to him every minute of his working day from 8 30 in the morning when he wakes up 
or leaves his hotel room rather to 4.30 in the afternoon when he goes back. So we not only have lunch with him every day and attend all his uh, public functions, but he's kind enough to let us sit in on all his private meetings also hmm. with um, his old friends, other religious teachers, scientists, heavy metal guitarists sometimes looking for a blessing. And, you know, when you asked me about the Dalai Lama, I suddenly flashed to this moment a few years ago when we traveled with him up to a fishing village that had just been devastated by the tsunami in Japan in 2011. And uh, 19,000 people were killed in this. And what had once been a fairly prosperous town was just wilderness, wasteland. It looked like pictures of Hiroshima after the atomic bomb. And we drove up there. And there were um, several hundreds of people standing along the road, um, bereft, but moved and, and grateful that this great spiritual teacher had come to offer what he could. So they were all standing along the road uh, behind ropes. And the minute His Holiness got out of his car, he went over to them. And they're mostly women, and they were just sobbing and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he held some of them, and he looked deeply into the eyes of others, and he gave blessings to other others of them. And he said the kind of things you would expect. He said, you know, please um, honor the people you've lost by doing something constructive. Rebuild your um, community the way your country rebuilt itself after World War II. Don't look to the past, which you can't change. Look to the future, which you can fashion with every moment. You know, stirring, encouraging words. And then he turned around, um, and I noticed there was a tear in his eye. And I noticed that even as he was delivering just the kind of words they probably were hoping for, he was his heart was broken and he was bleeding for them and breaking for them inside. And he wasn't just a wise man rationally dispensing advice. He was somebody who was living through their every loss together. Mm. And I think that combination of wisdom and humanity and the ability to see the world entirely as from above with absolute clarity and logic as he does and yet to feel it's every suffering, as he does too, is really something extraordinary that all of us witness. And in fact, when he went into this little temple, which was the only building that had survived the tsunami in that area, he, he said, well, I can't presume to know what, what you are feeling. But one day when I was 24, I was in my home in Lhasa, and somebody told me I had to leave my home that night. No time to say goodbye to my friends, no time to take a parting from my little dog, I had to leave. And a few days later, I heard that most of my friends were dead. So he said, you know, in some sense, I think he was saying the classic Buddhist teaching, this is human existence. It's all about suffering and loss and how to deal with suffering. Um, I'm with you. We're all in the same boat. We're all humans who at some level are losing everything we ever own constantly. Um, but how we rise to that challenge is what defines our life. Um, but the fact that we all know that the beauty of the Dalai Lama is in part that he always keeps his human, very vulnerable side alive, side by side with this great discernment. To, he is such a, an emblem as a human who's achieved being able to keep two planes of consciousness going at the same time. Mm. I, mean, I mean, to me, that's such a, a, a certainly a worthy goal of all of ours. To be able to do that, uh, so that um, he is staggering in that respect, and I yeah I have seen you know I have seen him, I was just telling this to I don't know do you know Mickey Lemley he just did a film very <laughs> well yes yeah. yes he's so, been a friend for thirty years yes yes yeah, so same with us um, 
and he just did this wonderful film, The Last Dalai Lama, question mark, uh, that's out there right now. And uh, I said the same thing to him. I said, although I have seen him, I can't count how many times when he's come to America at, at teachings and so on, and breakfasts, and I have never actually gotten up uh, to be with him personally, and not because probably knowing all the people I know, I, I could have, but it just didn't seem necessary. He's so connective yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on any scale. Yes, and exactly. I tell so many people that um, if you see him in an, aud in an auditorium with 20,000 people, you've seen him. You've seen exactly the same person as you would see if you were in a room alone with him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of the moving things about His Holiness. I, I went back and read my father's notes from 1960 when he talked to him then when His Holiness was just 25 years old. And on the one hand, as you know, he's alert to every little new headline, every change of weather and, and um, emotion in the room. But on the other hand, he can only be so constantly mobile and switch moods and selves so speedily because he's so deeply rooted within. And it was remarkable to read that when he was 25 years old, his core principles were word for word the same as what he would be saying now in his um, in his 80s. So. It's it's rare to see a person where there's no seam, there's no uh, contradiction, and there's the public face and the private face are all of a, yeah. a piece. And it's always in that context moving when we come down from his hotel room at 8.30 in the morning and we get out of the elevator. Of course, there are usually hundreds of people waiting to, to get a photograph or an autograph or a blessing, whatever. And the small six-year-old child will come up to him, and he will give that child his absolute attention as if he were listening to the Buddha himself and will do that with every person throughout the course of the day. I mean, for, during an eight-hour day, he never even takes five minutes by himself. Um, often his hosts will say, you know, Your Holiness, maybe you'd like to collect yourself or just get some quiet time. He said, no, 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 we must all be together. <laughs> and I, just from watching him, I'm 21 years younger than he is, or 22 years younger, I'm exhausted at the end of his day. But He's ready to keep going in his agency. That's something. Uh, so great. So uh, everybody out there, you've got to uh, pick up this wonderful book. It's called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. I'm going to show a picture of it because I love the cover as well. It's such a beautiful picture, yes. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And, uh, yeah, I can't – well, I'm not going to say more um, – uh, beautiful, long adjectives about what I feel about this book. So I just suggest you go, and by the way, go up to uh, our Amazon link, and you can use that so that we get a few shekels uh, without any issue for anybody. Everybody, it's like a perfect thing, although we can't say Amazon is a perfect company, but, we, but they certainly, in their affiliate program, allow little guys to get support for some of the things they're doing, so... I threw that in there. Sorry, Pico. Uh, there's something in the book uh, which I want to read, which uh, is more of a description from you about His Holiness. When he came into the room, accompanied by a group of aides and hosts, his stooped figure pressing forward, quote-unquote, he looks like a middle linebacker, his old friend and admirer. Abe Rosenthal, longtime managing editor of the New York Times, had once said to me, there was a sense of sharpened attention in our midst. 
He was looking around him as ever, picking out familiar faces, making eye contact with strangers, taking his new surroundings in. His hands were joined before him in a gesture of respect and his bearing. The opposite of remote was aimed, I thought, to try to dissolve all borders and get formality out of the way. We're all in this together, his body might have been saying. Let's see if we can use this session for some good. Which is pretty much what you just described, uh, just a little bit, uh, an example of the many different ways that you have at your uh, beck and call to uh, to describe uh, your world around you. <laughs> So great. Yes, well, and I think everyone who's seen the Dalai Lama knows that when you're in a huge auditorium, he will pick out somebody in the sixth row and say, hey, I saw you last in Lhasa in 1957. Sometimes I'll be talking to him and he'll say to me, you know, I remember the last time I saw your father, he was wearing a yellow shirt. (laughs) And I'll realize that was 23 years earlier. And he's met probably 2,000 people every day of his life since. But he's got that razor sharp mind. And I sometimes almost worry that um, his presence and his charisma and his bearing are so kind and so irresistible that people underestimate the, the, the clarity of that mind, mm. but it's, it's quite something. And I think the important point in the passage you read is just whoever you're with looking for the commonplace, um, looking for, so when he talks, I often travel with him and he goes to a school full of clamorous, restless nine-year-old boys, and he will instantly access the nine-year-old boy in himself and remember how he didn't like to study when he was a little kid and he wanted to play and goof off. And so for them, instantly, he's not some remote figure. Again, he's mm. he's one of them who's also, therefore, the embodiment of who they could be, their potential. Yeah. I, I, this is just something I'm going to shoot out at you from the book. Um, it's about how... Um, the Dalai Lama, how he does away with many of the categories with which we imprison ourselves and the only truths that can possibly make sense to us, he suggests, apply to all human beings. As much as uh, Pythagoras' theorem or the laws of thermodynamics do, if they pertain only to a specific tradition or culture, they're not human truths at all. And the only thing an Easterner or Westerner can offer is a window on those truths that allow the rest of us to see them more clearly than we had done before. I mean, if he doesn't, uh, if that isn't like one of the biggest things that he transmits, never mind all the uh, esoteric uh, Tibetan teachings, which, you know, you turn and find a lot of people asleep, uh, you know, at some points <laughs> in the talks. Uh, that is so paramount how he how he's able to break through uh, all of the the different categories of uh, boxes that we have created for ourselves either in the east or the west uh, i mean it's just um, incredible yeah talk a little bit about your own experience about how he's done that with you well as as you said it's more and more paramount i think as a result of what he's seen in the course of his travels he feels that whatever lies beyond religion is the main thing we need. He calls it secular ethics yeah. now. It comes yeah. across very strongly in Mickey's wonderful film, The Last Dalai Lama. Scientific process and secular ethics uh, are something that every human being 
has to assent to. And I often remind people it's extraordinary, probably one of the two or three most visible religious figures in the world, the Dalai Lama, his last major book was termed Beyond Religion. And for a religious figure to point beyond religion is, is, is startling and liberating, I think, for many of us. And I, yeah. what I hear him saying is that uh, religion is like a cup of tea, he says. It adds savor and flavor to life. It's, it's a wonderful luxury. But the necessity, which is the water of human life, without which we can't survive, is just human kindness. And he points out that people who have no religion are often kinder than people in robes, that, that kindness, thoughtfulness, attention, sensitivity, none of those are confined to religion, let alone one particular religion. And I, my sense is, you know, the Dalai Lama is a great empiricist. When he travels around the world, what he's doing at some level is also gathering data and evidence so as, so as to be more helpful in the future. I think of him as a, a doctor of the mind, principally he's a physician, just as the Buddha was. And so he's looking at symptoms and then coming up with how he can offer the most constructive diagnosis. And I think what he's seen is, in the course of his lifetime, Religion is so easily abused and so easily um, used in the service of uh, very irreligious things. So often it's about division or dogmatism or my way, not your way, that he's ever more keen to clear the table of religion entirely and go back to those human values that he makes a logical case for. He points out, if you're kind, you feel better and everybody else feels better. What's the logical case for being unkind? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just breaks it down almost as if they were mathematical equations. Uh, and, and as you say, it has nothing to do with being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist. Yeah, yeah. That is, it's so paramount. Yes, and that finally, it. I mean, I think the world has been very glad to meet Pope Francis because we hear some of the same things from him. But traditionally, we haven't heard from our religious leaders an ability to see beyond their own religions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So another book that uh, I actually have not read and I'll be ordering from Amazon uh, is uh, The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. I love that title. And uh, I th is that assembled from TED Talk or is it just on TED Talk Publishing? Is I couldn't quite figure uh, out. No, oddly enough, it's the other way around. Um, the, the people who do TED Talks decided to start publishing books. And this was the second book they published just three years ago. So I did give a TED Talk after the book was written. I see. But, um, but, but the notion of their books, as with their talks, is something very small that can be assimilated on one, in one sitting. So the book shouldn't, doesn't take more than an hour to read. It's lavishly illustrated. And true to the TED aesthetic, it's about one idea that you can take away and right. think about. And that idea, which we all know too well, is that uh, we're in a state of information overload, we're dizzy, we're overwhelmed, and the world is accelerating beyond our control. So how can we keep our sanity? Um, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if this is from the book. Uh, it's an article I happen to find. Uh, not many years ago, it was access to information and movement that seemed our greatest luxury. Nowadays, it's often freedom from information, the chance to sit still that feels like the ultimate prize. Stillness is not just an indulgence for those with enough resources. It's a necessity for anyone who wishes to gather less visible resources. Going nowhere, and this is a reference that I want to get into a little bit more uh, about Leonard Cohen, 
because you visited him, is, as, as Leonard had shown you, is not about austerity so much as about coming closer to one's senses. Uh, and, and also, I think I say at some point, it's about falling in love with the world. Mm. You know, I think when, when I went to Kyoto as a young guy, um, my notion was that meditation, monasticism, the inner life was all about going away from the world, into the wilderness, away from temptation. Very soon after I arrived in um, Japan, I, I was lucky enough to meet a Zen master. And he said, the whole point of this practice is the coming back into the world. The going away from the world is just a preparation so you can come back with more clarity and compassion into the thick of Times Square, just as the Dalai Lama does. So yes, I, I, I was thinking that stillness is not about separating yourself from the world, but being able to come to it with greater love and, um, and purpose mm. than never before. Yeah, I... And, you know, I was thinking it, it must, have been, must be a magical thing for you having, you, with your life's trajectory, I'm guessing that when you and your friends in the early 60s began to cultivate an inner life and a meditation practice and these things, they seemed so way out there and you would seem so um, maverick in doing that. And lo and behold, 40 years on, suddenly meditation, mindfulness are part of the mainstream. I mean, everybody realizes it's essential to health. And just as people are so eager to go to the health club now, I think more and more people are eager to go to the inner health club. I mean, they realize that <laughs> unless they have some way to focus themselves, they'll be scattered and their well-being is shot. I'll have to say uh, I can't cop to anything as high-minded as that back then. Uh, <laughs> not at all. Uh, when I met Ram Das uh, and he told that story of going to India to find his guru, you know, first he thought he was looking to find a Buddhist path that would make sense to him, and then suddenly he's, you know, in front of this uh, siddha that he had never ever counted on a bodhisattva, and uh, and I heard that story. Me and a bunch of other people went, okay, you got it. Where is he? We need to get there. We need to meet such a being. And that that was my motivation. Later, uh, through, and he never taught us anything. He just would say things, and some of them were f like, somehow we found the Vipassana course, right? And so that was an introduction to Buddhism. Somehow he would mention a couple of Tibetans that seemingly was the only thing that came out uh, that was, uh, uh, I wouldn't say respect. He, he did respect. Uh, he, um, I had a whole experience with Kalu Rinpoche uh, that he foretold the day before I went that I was going to get these teachings, you know, stuff like that. But honestly... In the mo in those years, the couple of years uh, when we met, Ron, there was nothing except how do we get to this thing that you <laughs> talked about? Okay, there was nothing else. And yes, you know, since then, of course, things have changed wildly. There, there's a beautiful uh, quote I can't remember who that I found. Faith is the ability to honor stillness at some moments. I'm not mm -hmm. sure who said that, um, but um, what a fabulous, fabulous quote, huh? Uh, Yes, I mean, I was thinking my one teacher in life really is um, is silence. You know, I've never been strong enough to have a steady practice, and I'm not affiliated with any religion. But I think silence has so instantly cleansed me of so many of my distortions and projections and the like that my sense is it's a kind of equal opportunity <laughs> teacher that anybody just 
with a go on a vipassana retreat, go on retreat to a Catholic monastery for t three days, go to the woods for a week without your cell phone, and you're instantly closer to something real. Yeah. And that, um, you know, the Quakers were onto something when they realized silence and light. Uh, give have those two around you, and you're already healthier than you were mm. without them. Mm. Very much. Well, we uh, although we're getting close to the end, we can't uh, leave you without you talking about one of my favorite people ever. And you say he was a childhood idol of yours. Well, okay, we're in the same boat, Pico, because Leonard Cohen is someone um, who actually comes from... I'm from Montreal, so... Oh, oh, my goodness, yeah. So when I grew up with him uh, and... Irving Layton, who was his kind of mentor, and yes. uh, and all the way down to the uh, you know the, to the uh, synagogue where his that his grandfather started that my uh, my mother's first cousin became the head rabbi in and we wow. have all of these things we knew people in common uh, I didn't meet him uh, often but did bump into him and uh, but another one that I didn't need I mean through his work. I got everything I could possibly want, um, and and in in this I think it's you just you quoting him, uh, describing the hubbub of his ordinary state of mind. Leonard, right? He was describing his head, quote unquote. Oh, it's very much like the waiting room at the DMV. <laughs> <laughs> Only he could come up with an analogy, a poetic analogy. Let's just. Tell just a little bit of, of your experience with Leonard. I know you went to interview him up at Mount Baldy when he was up there. I, I will just say that whenever people saw him on stage, they would notice an incredible modesty and graciousness and focus. And off stage, he was even more humblingly like that. Um, I've, one way or another, I spent a lot of my life around monasteries and monks. And apart from the Dalai Lama, I could say I've never met a monk as serious, as determined, and um, as unimpressed with himself as Leonard. And of course, his monastic practice and his kindness were all helped by that droll sense of humor that you invoked. The, you know, he could he, the sense that he wasn't ever taking anything too seriously, mm. least of all himself. But uh, whenever I would drive up to see him, you know, he shared a duplex in the most neglected part of Los Angeles, a really simple house with his daughter. He would be waiting at the top, ready to serve. I mean, he's only being like, it's like being in Japan again. For every visitor, however humble the visitor, and I am I'm pretty humble at the sort of bottom of the food chain, as soon as you came in, his only thought was, what can I give you? How can I make you comfortable? Would you like some bagels? Can I make you some eggs? Would you rather sit over there? Um, and for somebody of the accomplishment and eloquence of Leonard Cohen to manage to make himself almost a menial grunt when necessary um, was really a humbling lesson. So, yes, as you mentioned, I first got to know him when I went up and spent a few days at Mount Baldy Monastery behind Los Angeles, where he was living uh, as a monk. And one of the things that moved me was here was a man who tasted all the pleasures of the world, everything that sex and drugs and rock and roll have to offer. And he was the one who said to me, age 61, you know, this is the ultimate voluptuous experience. This is the profound adventure, the delicious treat that life has to offer, sitting still, looking after the others. And, and he was literally scrubbing floors, washing dishes, shoveling snow, and driving his 88-year-old Japanese teacher to the doctor. He had just completely erased 
that being that the world thinks of as Leonard Cohen mm -hmm. and made himself um, an anonymous person serving others. Um, and given all the things that somebody of that accomplishment has to set aside to do that, it's remarkable. I mean, many of us aspire to do that and still can't do it, but it was really extraordinary to see in his regular life back in Los Angeles and in his monastic life, um, how uh, he had worked, worked through so much of the, um, the tangle in his life. Yeah. Partly, and I think one reason people look to him for so much wisdom is that he, as he sings in Hallelujah, I'm not speaking as somebody who's seen the light. I'm somebody who's intimate with the darkness. And he always felt the pain, the suffering, the panic, to use one of his favorite words, in him. And yet, really, what you had in Leonard Cohen was someone who, through extremely hard work and great determination, yeah, so I think just to see somebody with that degree of accomplishment um, so get rid of all the clutter and just become this anonymous person who is so ready to serve anybody. Um, again, you know, true to the Buddhist spirit, that's right. And I think I, I was. what struck me was always that he wasn't somebody who had seen the light, but he was somebody who was intimate with darkness and was in the midst of panic and, and pain and but still, you always felt that he was winning small victories against them. And, um, and through just hard work and great determination, had made his way into a clearing of, of sorts. You know, the last line he delivered on his final record was he was saying, we were broke and now we're borderline. So he yeah. certainly wasn't suggesting that he'd come out into any place of great light. But at least he'd moved from being broken to the possibility yeah. of being put together again. Yeah. But um, really the thing I, I, I would stress is just um, how funny, how articulate and how kind he was. And I've never, because I've been working for Time Magazine for 35 years, I've been lucky enough to meet various eminences, but I've never met anyone who's in his league when it comes to um, wisdom, depth and humor. Mm. Beautiful. Boy, you know, you've had some wonderful opportunities in your life because the common thread of this whole conversation, Pico, has been around kindness, humility, and service, essentially. I'm so glad. What, what better things to think about or to aspire to or to Nothing. see reflected back to us? Well, thank you for extracting that. I, that's, a, that's a very inspiring trinity to have in mind. Well, it's, it's everything. That's all we were given when we were in India with Neem Karoli Baba. Just those things. Mm -hmm. In fact, mm -hmm. the the foundation, the foundational uh, transmission, you might say, although he didn't do that either, is love, serve, remember. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we were left with. That's what our, our foundation is called, that uh, we uh. have all of Ramdas stuff under and this Be Here Now network, yeah. And, and this is, your whole life has been around a very similar theme and you are very fortunate, and I'm fortunate to be able to spend this time with you, and I really appreciate it, Pico. Well, I'm, I really feel privileged to be to be talking to you because I, I really, like all of us, I think of Ram Dass as the one who sort of brought so much of this right into our hearts, in every sense, in the heart of our culture way back when. And I'm always invoking his wisdom, not least, I believe it was Ram Dass who said, anytime I begin to feel enlightened. I go and spend a weekend with That's my parents. Yeah. And you know, those, those kind of life truths are just yeah. what we need to yeah. keep with us. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, I never would have imagined all, all my years that uh, I would end up you know, talking uh, to, on, in this context. And mm. uh, 
into something that's helping Ramdas share his wisdom with the world. Mm. Well, thank you for being here. And everybody out there, we will have uh, Pico's uh, book titles on the website linked over to where you can get them. And uh, uh, what else? Is there anything else we can do that would help people connect uh, with you? No, thank you. It's, a, it's such a pleasure just to get to talk to you and talk to your friends who may be listening in. Well, thank you again. And everybody, this is uh, Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we'll see you next week. <laughs>